Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. Believe nothing you hear, and only one half that you see. Edgar Allan Poe. This is Jessica McAvoy, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. All right, here we go. We're back. In three, two, one. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Wicked Library, Season 11, Episode number 14. I hope you've enjoyed the season so far. We've had some amazing guest hosts and more to come on that front. Thank you most sincerely to those of you who are supporting our show on Patreon. You truly make the show possible. It is because of your support that I can continue to pay the very talented authors, voice actors, and composer. Simply, it's your support that allows us to make sure those who contribute to the show don't work for free. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and I really do rely on your support to make sure I can pay the contributors. In addition to knowing you're a part of making this show possible, you also get fun rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support, even more. In fact, if you're a supporter or become one, you can enjoy two extra Dark Tales coming this month. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. That's patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Now, today's story was written for us by TWL alum author Mike Pilgrim. It's told by Graham Rowett and accompanied by a custom score by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. This story... Well, this story is a dark one, folks, and it's worthy of a second warning, which we don't do too often. So, this fictional tale deals with deep loss and comes with the following trigger warnings. Eating disorders, death of a child, body horror, body modification, pregnancy, animal cruelty, death of a pet. So, hold on tight and buckle up for this dark ride called Personal Growth. If at any time the story becomes too much for you, remember that you are in control. Press pause, press stop, or take a break and come back later. This nightmare proceeds at your discretion.
some time after 1am on Christmas Eve, when the house had gone up in flames. I'd fallen asleep in my workshop at the bottom of the garden, after admittedly having far more to drink than I told Kate I was going to have. One of the neighbors must have called the fire department, because I could hear it closing in in the distance like a sonic boomerang. Barefooted, I crested the snowcake lawn and saw the blaze gorging itself on the rafters of our home, the shattering of roof tiles only just audible over the thundering flames. I knew it was too late, but when has logic ever had a place in such a situation? Deep breath, Arthur. I grabbed the door handle and forced the back door open, leaving the skin that used to be my palm sizzling like bacon on the metal. The kitchen was the sixth circle of hell. Putrid smoke stabbed its fingers into my eyes. I screamed for Kate, for Abby nothing. Glass ornaments exploded, dinner plates transforming into grenades. Holding my breath as best I could, I dashed through the black cloud. My lungs smoldered, water pooled in the corners of my eyes. I forged ahead to little Molly's room. I shoved the door open, revealing a hellscape of molten toys. I snatched Molly from the crib, held her to my chest, and ran. Everything was shrinking. My head throbbed. My arms ached as I clung to her. She was so warm. Too warm. But I held on to her no matter what. Weeping, shuddering with fits of coughing, I pushed ahead. But it was only when I made it into free air that I realized I was on fire. My polyester shirt had transformed into a molten plastic spider which clung to my slender chest chewing through skin and fat on its way to devour my ribcage. A firefighter lunged at me with a blanket and snuffed out the flames. Still in my arms, my little Molly was a brittle charcoal husk. We were at the hospital before the paramedics managed to separate my body from hers. I fought them, every step of the way. Burn wards have a smell. The air tastes greasier than a politician. It's a scorched pork joint. The tang of intense copper tangled with a sweet splash of medical-grade bleach. You want a huff disinfectant to flush the stink of your own burnt skin and hair out of your senses, but you know it won't ever work. The reek will never really leave you. Most people don't know that you can die from shock, but that's what kills most burn victims. The pain from the injury hits you in waves, but you don't always notice them. Instead, you're focused on the way it feels like your body is hemorrhaging heat from the inside, being hollowed out. With all the technologies us human creatures have contrived, the best we've got for shock is lie down and tough it out. They cut the remains of my clothes free and did what they could, given the state of me. My face was an irate hemorrhoid, my torso a blackened lava crust. When it was clear I wasn't going to die on them and my insurance had checked out, one of the nurses gave me an injection of Chiron nanobots. Far cheaper than the morphine, she said, 
as she jabbed the needle into my crispy bacon arm. Chiron. Isn't that the creepy guy who ferries the dead into the underworld? That's a morbid name. No, Chiron like the centaur who was really good at medicine. She withdrew the needle. The one you're thinking of is Haron. I'd heard about these nanos. I'm a programmer. How could I not have? They can be remotely programmed to block pain receptors during surgery. They're adept at speedily closing wounds and saving lives, but the results are seldom pretty. The sturdier nanos, though, the Atlas strain, can latch together to create a support carapace around a precarious organ or replace muscle function or sometimes even the entire inner workings of a fully articulated limb. Technology truly is a mystical, terrifying beast. Before you're discharged, we'll deactivate the nanobots. Your body will pass them in your stool within about 12 hours. Later, a police officer dropped by to tell me that an electrical short had started the fire, that the fire alarms had failed that Kate and Abigail had died of asphyxiation well before the flames had even got to them. Molly, however, hadn't been so lucky. My three-year-old baby girl had burnt to death. I'm so very sorry, Mr. Godwin. There was nothing you could have done to save her. As he spoke, I fancied I could feel the tiny robots crawling through my bloodstream, stabbing their microscopic talons into my heart. About three weeks into recovery, I got a visit from the insurance company. The guy they sent was a nameless scarecrow in a navy suit. I saw him long before he spotted me. He was stern-faced, stoic, right up until the nurse brought him over to my bed. One look at me and his face drained to the same shade as his perfectly pressed shirt. I pointed out to him that I wasn't even nearly the worst in the ward. In fact, around these parts, I was considered the looker. Mr. Insurance Policy didn't laugh. I figured he must be allergic to humor. After all, he wasn't the one who'd just seen his whole family burnt to death. As he laid out the documents for me to sign, everything became impossibly real. Kate and the girls weren't just gone. They were dead. Decaying in the earth. The bloated number on the page was the only tangible thing that remained of them. Against all reasonable advice to the contrary, I decided to use the insurance money to rebuild the house. It really was the only right decision. It wouldn't be finished before I was well enough to leave the hospital, so I decided to expand the workshop with a bedroom, a proper bathroom, and a kitchen. I'd be living there until the new house was ready, so why not make it comfortable? After Mr. Insurance left... I ordered the nanobots and a few other supplies on a public medical website. Then I got to work coding. It didn't help dull the pain or keep my mind from grieving, but it did keep me busy. The afternoon I walked out of the hospital into free air, I was ravenous. There was a small diner across the road that conformed to every stereotype imaginable. Giant bay windows looked in on booth seats coated in sleek red vinyl, tables with goofy ketchup and mustard bottles, and an exhausted middle-aged career waitress who, congruent with all expectations, was called Betty. Betty balked for a moment at my still raw face, glanced at my scarred pink forearms, smiled, 
and like a true professional, brought me a triple-decker double bacon cheeseburger, three chocolate shakes with extra whipped cream, and a waffle. Afterwards, she called a cab that took me to a nearby motel. I didn't sleep much that first night. The dirty beige room reeked of strangers. I felt bloated. Every burp brought up rancid echoes of syrup-soaked pancakes, melted cheese, and grease-drowned sausages. My digestive system juddered under the strain, struggling to find homes for the seemingly infinite number of surplus calories. I lay on my side in the anonymous bed, wondering if there was a more efficient way to speed up the process. I fancied that my gut was already starting to droop independently of my frame onto the sheet, but I knew it was still too early for that. I'd fully expected the tears to find me when I was finally alone, and they did. They came on like a tsunami. That night, I drowned. I woke at 6 a.m., washed the salt crust off my face, changed into the giant sweatpants I'd bought for comfort. A cab shuttled me round the corner to Betty's diner, and I got to work eating. Two weeks later, my childhood friend Charlotte flew in from out of state to help me settle into my new living situation in the back of the newly expanded workshop. In her life, she's a psychiatrist, but sometimes she likes to slum it with me and reminisce about how things might have been different if she hadn't dropped her performing arts major. She rented a car from the airport and drove me across town. Coming up the driveway, I balked at the halo of dead grass surrounding the building site that used to be our home. I pulled a candy bar out of my pocket and ate it, tears adding a new dimension to the chocolate. I noticed Charlotte's eyes watering too as she stopped the car just outside the workshop. She heaved the bags out of the trunk. I helped where I could, but mostly I was useless. Inside, it was almost as I'd left it that night five months ago. The boxes I'd ordered were carefully stacked, as I'd requested, fragile tape covering every inch of them. Char had learned years ago that if she asked me a question she didn't want to hear the answer to, she was probably going to get an answer she wouldn't want to hear. So instead, she raised an eyebrow at the boxes and asked if I'd also like a glass of wine. As a practicing psychiatrist, she knows what it is that people really need. I'd managed to keep to my eating plan so far, and had packed on around 38 pounds in the last two weeks. Eating 10,000 calories a day took a lot more effort than I'd imagined it would, but expectation and reality very seldom live in the same zip code. Even if I faltered, though, I'd comfortably reach my target birthing weight in the next 60 days. Just gotta work the plan. You sure about staying here, Art? I mean, well, just standing here, I can't... I can't even. God, fuck, I miss them. She squeezed me in a hug. My still raw flesh ached under the well-intentioned pressure. My entire frame tensed. I became a humanoid chunk of cold steel. Charlotte pulled back. Oh shit, I'm so sorry. I didn't even think. It's okay. I won't always be like this. Someday I'll be dead too. She looked me up and down and asked if I was putting on weight. Charlotte stayed for two nights. She crashed on the couch, even though there was a spare room. It was just like when we were in college. We got pretty fucking smashed. There was a lot of laughter, but there was far more crying. 
As marvelous as the distraction of her company was, I couldn't wait for her to leave so I could get started on the stuff I couldn't do from my hospital bed. She climbed into the rental. I'll be back in town in a month. We'll only have time to meet for lunch. In the meantime, please try to look after yourself. She slipped me three bottles of antidepressants before driving away. Unpacking, assembling, and filling the tanks took far more effort than I would have liked. I'm an excellent programmer, but I'll always be a shitty engineer. Also, I was the most out of shape I'd ever been, which was kind of the point. I added extra calories to lunch, so the physical effort wouldn't run me into deficit. Three cheese pizzas with extra ham and pepperoni, topped with mac and cheese, a tub of chocolate fudge ice cream, and a two-liter bottle of cola. After food, I dropped a cube of Atlas nanobots into the first glowing blue tank. It sank slowly, a dull thump as it hit the bottom. Nothing happened, and that was good, because nothing was supposed to happen. The cube stayed put. I routed the wireless system from the main terminal to connect, and... Bingo. The green light on the bottom left of the GUI flicked on. Perfect. I uploaded the first line of code. A beep confirmed that the Atlas nanobots had received it. I loaded up the balance and hit send. Beep. The nanos broke formation. The cube disintegrated in seconds, transforming into an ink cloud of tiny robots, which expanded through the blue liquid towards the anchor node at the end of the tank. I watched, my insides prickling as a metallic lump formed on the node, which in turn sprouted wiry strands that split into spindly threads. The sparse outline of a head formed, expanding outwards from the anchor point, a neck, shoulders, torso. This rudimentary nervous system would double as the frame of her body, an endoskeleton on which I would hang Kate's consciousness. It was beautiful. I pressed my hand to the lukewarm glass. I see you, my love. You're right there, and I miss you. I set the program to run diagnostics and waddled to the other terminal to focus on the second part. I needed to get the Chiron nanos prepped and into my fat deposit as soon as possible. I linked the other terminal to the bottle of nanos and installed the database of memories I'd managed to salvage from my remote backups. Photos, letters, videos of birthday parties, our wedding day in the forest, and the birth of our two beautiful children. The tiny machines would learn fast, becoming fully self-aware in a few days, which wasn't a hard thing to achieve. What I needed to do, though, was teach them how to feel, to understand human connection. In Kate's favorite book, The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams Bianco, a ragged old rocking horse said, Real isn't how you are made, it's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. I hoped I had enough time to make Kate real. I'd have to talk to the nanos constantly, recount memories. It would be difficult. We live stories day by day. They become part of us, and we become them. If reality is a painting that we have no sway over, then stories are our point of view. They are how we cope with the things we cannot change. I loaded up the hypodermic needle and injected them into my belly fat.
During the nine months I'd watched Kate carry Abigail to term, I'd felt helpless. Anything I did, however well-intentioned, was wrong. It was never Kate snapping at me. Rather, it was her dealing with this incredible weight that I could never hope to understand. But a little under two months into my own pregnancy, my cheek resting on the frigid toilet bowl, I stared at the remnants of the previous night's meal crawling down the sides of the bowl. I'm pretty sure I got it. I wondered what she would really make of me, this bloated blob of a thing grunting and swearing as it failed and failed and failed to pick itself up off the tiles. See, honey, I told you I wasn't exaggerating. Now stop being a wuss and go hydrate. I lie in bed most days. It's the most effective way to conserve calories. I quickly realized that the easiest way to succeed would be to become completely sedentary. Couches don't move, so that's what I did. I channeled my inner couch. It takes more effort than anyone might believe. Eating to this level of excess takes true discipline. I watched nothing but Kate's favorite movies. I read her favorite books aloud. I talked constantly to my growing belly, reliving all my memories, so she knows who she is when she gets here. I recount the story of how we met by chance on a message board. There was an argument about banana bread, of all things. I hated banana bread at the time, but as our heated discussion bloomed into molten argument, your turns of phrase intrigued me more and more. Somehow I convinced you to meet me at a large chain coffee shop. You brought a friend who thankfully kept her distance and a slice of banana bread that you'd baked yourself. Inexplicably, during that first hour, you convinced me to try it. That first bite changed my life. After the second, I knew that I couldn't live without you. I told you right then that I'd been wrong about everything. You replied with, I know. We met at that cafe for lunch the next day, and the day after that. Cackling like lunatics, we upset the other patrons, until at last the manager came over and told us he'd settle our bill if we promised to leave and never come back. For our fifth anniversary, we rented the whole cafe out so just the two of us could drink coffee, eat cake, and laugh. I blinked, and it had been eight years. We were married, and I was holding Abigail in my arms while you snored on my shoulder. She was perfect. You were so perfect. We had the life we'd always talked about. We'd learnt how to live simply, how to save money. We had everything we needed. You'd made some smart investments and stashed a surplus for the inevitable hard times. My work had taken off in that one-in-a-million way some industries occasionally do. At first, I'd designed websites, created logos, scrambled for work like everyone does. Then one morning, during my daily me-time, I decided that it would be a good idea to learn how to code. I started that night. A year later, through sheer pig-headedness, I paid off our first house. Two years after that, I'd sold my business, and we'd use the money to knock the house down and rebuild it from scratch, exactly the way we wanted. You had your studio in the attic, and I had my workshop in the garden, mostly for tinkering. You painted landscapes for fun, although I could never understand how landscapes were fun. 
Every now and then, though, you'd pick up a commission, just to remind yourself why you didn't do commissions. Kate's questions were distant whispers in the back of my mind at first, but her voice grew louder as the days went by. At all hours, she'd ask about her favorite food, watermelon, about her parents, both long dead. If she'd ever ridden a horse, no. But she had gotten pretty close when we were on holiday in Greece, but chickened out at the last moment. She asked about our babies. So with tears streaming down my face, I told the stories. Abby had grown like a weed, a beautiful, resilient weed. She was our beautiful daughter before either of us truly realized it, and once she'd pointed it out, it was so blatantly obvious that we felt stupid for not seeing it first. Mommy? Daddy? I need you to know that I am not a boy. This body doesn't fit me. It's all wrong. I know that I'm a girl. She stated it matter-of-factly, as if she were explaining gravity to a pair of idiots. It wasn't a debate. Abby must have been beyond distraught but she didn't flinch. She looked me in the eye and stood her ground, knowing that there were only two ways the discussion could go, the most likely of which being us telling her to leave and never come back. I don't know if I've ever been that brave in my entire life. I hugged my new daughter tightly, feeling the tension in her entire body dissolve. I'm only going to ask you this once, so take a moment to think it over before you answer, okay? Abby nodded smearing tears into my chest. Are you sure this is what you want? That moment stretched out almost to the point of snapping. Her tiny voice vibrated through the fabric of my shirt. Yes, Daddy, I'm sure. I rang Charlotte. She was living and practicing in Pittsburgh at the time. An hour later, she pulled into the driveway with a bouquet of sunflowers, the initial three months of hormone blockers, and a card that read, Warmest congratulations on the birth of your sweet baby girl. Abigail had done nothing but make us proud every single day since. I looked up at the nervous system floating in the tank above my desk and rubbed the scarred remains of my flame-eaten ear. It wasn't a comforting sensation, but the rubbery chunk of scarred flesh always brought me back to what was important. Being here, now... Focusing on the work, getting it done piece by piece, chunk by chunk. That's how you eat an elephant, after all, one bite at a time. That morning, at only 56 days out of the hospital and weighing 357 pounds, I was close to done. My watch buzzed to remind me it was lunchtime, and my body flinched at the prospect of yet more food. Had it been two hours already? I could still feel the imprints of the last snack in my gullet. The phone rang. I saw the name on the front. Then I realized what day it was. Charlotte, I'm so fucking sorry I completely forgot. I'll be there in 20. I heard Kate's voice in my head, shrill, excited. She couldn't wait to meet Charlotte. She had so many questions. Maybe next time, love. You have a little nap and I'll wake you when I get back. I pressed a button on the remote in my pocket and she went to sleep. I missed her already. From the far side of the all-too-snug cafe table, Charlotte made a magician's flourish gesture to indicate me. All of me. 
Kumar spec. That's what this is. Kumo what? Kumar spec. It's German. It literally translates to grief bacon. That's what's going on here. I'm not judging. I'm as guilty of that shit as anyone. As if to punctuate her point, she removed the straw from her glass, gulped down the last third of her banana milkshake, and belched. I waited. Charlotte might have dropped out of drama school to pursue a doctorate in psychiatry, but theater was hardwired into her personality. I knew better than to interrupt her when she was monologuing. Basically, she wiped her mouth on the remains of a paper napkin. You've been eating your feelings. All your feelings. I shrugged and took a deep pull from my Neapolitan shake. My Uncle Nelson did what you're doing after my cousin took a dive under a train. Nelson lent into it hard. My dad was certain that it was his quiet attempt to remove himself from circulation. I slurped up the chocolate dregs at the bottom of the glass. Charlotte didn't even miss a beat. One day, though, he woke up, looked at his life, and a hyper-focused rage took him. He showered, shaved that fucking hideous neck beard, put on some clean clothes, and went out and got a dog. A rescue. He renamed it Chubby. He walked that damn dog twice a day, every day. A month later, they were running. Eight months after that, both he and the dog were built like tanks. So what's your point exactly? No point, not really. Sometimes you just gotta do what you gotta do until you're ready to move on. I don't need 12 years study to know that. But that said, my question to you, my dearly bloated friend, is this. Would you split another waffle with me? You know how shit I am when it comes to peer pressure. I said the only thing I could say. Do I look like a quitter to you? My liposuction appointment came around fast. The lady on the front desk got more than a bit of fright when I made my wheezing way through the double doors. It was only the second time in three months that I'd left the workshop on account of my size. Four days earlier, numerous places on my belly had split open into bleeding yellow mouths. The inelastic scar tissue had buckled, unable to take the strain of the extra weight. I'd done what I could with bandages and painkillers, but I was in a lot of pain. Kate couldn't wait to be birthed, to taste food, to feel the wind on her face, to move independent of me. I wasn't sure how taste would work, or sensation, but we'd cross those bridges when we got to them. I used the remote to put her to sleep before they put me under. Life is hard enough without subjecting yourself to avoidable trauma. When I woke after the procedure, I was alone in the bed. It was strange not to feel Kate's weight on top of me, to not hear her voice in my head telling me how much she loved me. The doctor explained how everything had gone according to plan and that my package was chilled and waiting when I was ready. People say that money can't solve all your problems, but I say to those people, if you have a problem that money can fix and the money to fix it, then you don't really have a problem. Hopped up on painkillers and waddling like a penguin that had taken a steel-toe-capped boot to the groin, I was home by late afternoon. Despite the agony, it was nice to have proper mobility again. I did what I could to ignore the wet leather flapping sensation of the loose skin under my arms and on the backs of my legs. All my joints ached from the trauma of the last few months, 
but it was pure joy to sit in my desk chair again and not spill out over both sides. The nervous system floated at a neutral buoyancy in the tank above, a spider web of nodes all woven together to pass knowledge, a framework to support flesh. Kate was unconscious in the cooler, her mind still dormant in the lard. I made a few final adjustments, tested then corrected the pH of the amniotic tank and added nutrients. Then, with still wobbly legs, I hauled the first cooler up the stairs and popped the lid. It's time, my love. I tipped a bag of sulfur-yellow fat into the liquid, and as they passed the surface, the blue light painted them to emerald blobs. A section of the nervous system reached out and clutched a few chunks, pulling them to it like a star, coaxing the makings of a planet into its orbit. With precise movements, the spider legs sculpted and reshaped the tiny bits that used to be me into the beginnings of fingers and a forearm. I tipped in more fat. A cloud of nanobots broke free of the nervous system and engulfed the whole chunk in a protective metallic carapace. It drifted toward the anchor node, coming to rest where a brain would be. I tipped another helping of myself into the liquid. Nanos forged a throbbing yellow heart within the torso. Shoulders formed. Limbs filled out. The tight curve of her hips expanded. The body floating in the tank had no skin, no eyes, but it was complete. I checked the terminal, asked the system how it was coping. All green bars. One hundred percent. I sat down heavily feeling my heart swell as I watched Kate's chest expanding and contracting, although she had no functioning lungs. I was desperate to wake her, hold her in my arms, but there was still work to do. I took one last look at my toes, who were distant strangers to me now, and unwrapped a jumbo-sized chocolate bar. When I roused her later that evening, Kate was irrepressible. It felt strange to have her in the bed with me, the soft mass that I'd carried for months now carrying itself. She reached downwards, pushed the cascade of loose skin to one side, and found me stiffer than a boy scout in a strip club. I love you, Arthur. I have missed you so much. I wept often at her touch, but never dared shun it. We talked into the wee hours. I lay back and she fed me toffees like I was some misshapen Grecian deity. She brought me burgers, pizza, lasagna, double fudge milkshakes. Let me take care of you, Art. You're eating for two now. She wore the brunette wig I'd bought her, and we made love in the dark. I felt complete for the first time since the accident. I knew it couldn't last, though. It was too good to last. Nothing is forever. Abigail was a difficult pregnancy. Both times. When Kate had her, we were first-time parents. Unprepared, sure, but not stupid. We did our best. The lead-in had been rough. There'd been a few scares. Kate sang constantly to the baby in her belly, telling her stories about frogs and princes and flitty sparrows who learnt the error of their ways from golden statues of dead princes. By way of applause, Abby would kick like a mule in heat. This time was completely different, though. 
I had Abby's voice in my head from day one. She asked about everything. She was present and vocal in our bed, which put something of a damper on things. But on those quiet mornings, segregated from the outside world, Kate and I would lie in our grease-stained bed. She'd press her moist earhole to my stretch-marked gut and whisper to her daughter. She said how desperately she was looking forward to holding her, to seeing her grow into the beautiful woman she was always meant to be. Without the extra programming to worry about this time around, I was able to fully rest and focus on putting on the weight. I ate the food that Kate prepared for me. Everything had extra cheese and extra oil. I drank a two-liter bottle of soda with every meal. The headaches were bad, but compared to the endless agony of the burn ward, it was at worst an inconvenient thrum. A thrum over which Abby's constant questions echoed. Did giraffes' necks get sore? If I were an ice cream, what flavor would I be? What was the best day of your life, Daddy? Will it be much longer until I can hug Mommy? I felt her there, in the back of my thoughts, even when I drifted into slumber. It was a comfort, feeling this closeness with my baby girl. I'd always envied Kate's experience, feeling life germinate within you, knowing that you were an important cog on the wheel of the universe, a furnace of flesh forging a tiny life that will stretch into the tomorrows you will not be around to see. Except for the 24 minutes Kate had to spend recuperating in her own tank every 18 hours, she was by my side every moment. She fed me when I was too exhausted to lift a fork. She helped wash me when I was too big to wipe myself properly. Excursions to the bathroom became longer and longer. My bowels were constantly in overdrive, grinding down corn chips, masticating pizza, piles of chocolate, my body soaking all the sugar in before sending the balance out the exhausted waste pipe. It was harder than the first time, but even in my weakest moment, I didn't dare tell Kate that. I needed to get the job done, and soon, because my body wouldn't cope with another pregnancy in the time we had. I pushed the liposuction appointment back a few weeks into November and focused on doubling my efforts. If Kate was a little deflated about having to wait longer, Abby was fuming. She withdrew inside me and refused to engage for a full week. I felt her raging in the back of my mind, a Vesuvius of screaming with no tangible mouth. I didn't have to get as big as before, but it would have to be close. I slept as much as I could. I watched TV from bed when I couldn't sleep. Even with all the cleaning and wet wipes, the atmosphere around me became acrid. It was aerosolized, damp, rotting washcloths, forgotten vinaigrette. I was thankful that Kate didn't have any working smell receptors, because I could barely stand to be near me. The spaces of flesh in between scar tissue distended to accommodate the new girth. The only thing I hated more than the CPAP machine was the terror of waking up suffocating in the dark. Stop being such a baby, Kate said. Women have been doing this forever. Strap on a pair of ovaries and dig deep, big boy, because in two weeks you'll be able to hug your daughter. I managed to arrange a home appointment for the liposuction. I'd say that it was because they were being nice, but in all honesty, putting a few extra zeros on a check tends to lubricate people's goodwill response more than anything else. 
Abby still wasn't speaking to me, so while Kate was fixing dinner, I used the remote to deactivate her. When she woke up again, she would be here in the real world, wearing flesh. Kate still nattered away to Abby over dinner. I made up some replies, but mostly I managed to convince her that her daughter was having a teenage moment. When Kate went for her maintenance nap, I switched her off too. Looking up at her floating in the tank, I whispered that I loved her, and I told her how sorry I was. I didn't have the capacity to explain her to anyone outside. The technician arrived early the next day. His face wrinkled at the obvious tang of unwash as he opened the outer sliding door and stepped into the bedroom. But like a professional, he thankfully didn't mention the state of the room. I'd done what I could to clean the place up a little, but after the fourth time bending over to pick up a sock, I'd got lightheaded and had to go for a lie down. Where would you like me to set up, Mr. Godwin? He gestured to the heavy-duty plastic flight cases he held. In here I'll be fine. I woke Kate a few hours later. She was furious, but when she saw the loose skin hanging from my forearms and drooping from my neck, she wrapped me in an enormous wet hug. The yellow spongy bits that made up her arms squished around me. I was sore, but too tired to protest. And besides... I'd already paid the price for that moment of closeness. The pain was worth it. Are you ready to be a mother? I whispered into the place where her ear should be. Kate squeezed me tighter. Can I do it? I mean, can I help? Of course, my love. I let over slowly and, with more effort than I was happy to admit, popped the lid open on the cooler. I've already divided it all out. This whole cooler should do it. I handed her a bag, which swirled with sulfur-yellow globs of me cut with strands of red. Kate's eyeless face wrinkled as she held up the bag, examining this fraction of our daughter. I've already prepared the tank with her nervous system, but be very gentle with these, though. She's still asleep inside. Kate nodded. What's the other cooler for? Now that, my love, is a surprise. Her yellow, toothless mouth twisted up in a grin. She pecked me on the cheek, leaving a greasy smudge. Then, cradling the bio bag in her arms like a newborn, she skipped to the ladder. The tube was an illuminated sapphire, inside which the spindly tendrils of Abigail's nervous system twitched as if in a dream. Just tip it slowly at the corner, love. The other nanos will do all the rest. Kate did. The blood residue darkened the water with black clouds, while the blue light recolored the polypy fat cells green. Kate peered over the lip and into the tank. Art, nothing's happening. I waddled across the floor and handed another bag up to her. We're going to put the rest of her in the tank before I activate them. Kate undid the seal and tipped out the contents. She was down the stairs and back up again with the last two bags before I could even gesture that I'd help. That's the last of them, she shrieked. Okie dokie, here goes. I typed the password, selected the endoskeleton, and started the build program. The tank was instantly a galaxy of flickering stars. Quickly, the nanobots collected up all the stray hematids, compacting them together into a brown ball that they discarded on the floor of the tank. Then they got to work. 
Small chunks of fat danced upwards through the amniotic fluid like plastic bags carried on a breeze. The shape of the body rapidly came into view, lumps arranging themselves, filling out the interior of the mechanical nervous system. Toes, calves, thighs, stomach, chest, arms, and finally, the eyeless head. Kate stood frozen in place like some obscene perversion of Venus, her seeing receptors taking in the second birth of her first daughter. Art, why isn't she moving? Stop worrying so much and come over here. She did. Now press this button. She jabbed the button, smearing it with cold fat. There was a moment of quiet, cracked by the muffled rumble of the tank oxygenating. Abby's head twitched then her adipose toes. I slipped my unsteady hand into Kate's and squeezed. She squeezed right back. I checked the terminal. All green bars. She's sleeping, I whispered. Do you want to go wake her up? Kate was up the stairs before I'd even finished the sentence. She slipped into the tank and under the surface, the blue tone instantly shading her yellow figure green, sliding through the viscous liquid like a serpent hunting prey. She slid her arms around her daughter, and her touch was instantly met with an embrace. Some moments are beyond words. I waited at the bottom of the steel stairs, a fresh towel tucked under my arm. Abby leapt towards me, wrapping me in her newly forged arms. I love you, Daddy. I love you so much. Kate followed suit, encasing us both in a hug. Seismic sobs racked every inch of my distorted body. Being the only one of us with tear ducts, I put my back into it, and ugly cried for three. That night, I ate a salad. Fresh tomatoes, chopped cucumber, some diced onion. My taste buds were shot from six months of artificial flavorings, but the texture was something magical. I didn't burp grease that night in bed. Kate and Abby nattered on and on and on. It was glorious. They discussed boys and clothes, but Abby's main topic was puppies. She wanted, no, she needed, a puppy. It was vital to her development as a valuable member of society. Honey, with your condition, I don't think a puppy is such a good idea. She didn't know what I meant by condition. I didn't want to ruin the evening, so I did what dads do. I said, maybe, but only if you're good. I went to bed early and left the girls chatting in the kitchen. The soothing white noise of their conversation in the adjacent room coaxed me into serene rest. The next morning, after a kale and strawberry smoothie, I took the CPAP machine out into the snowy garden and beat it to death with a baseball bat. I cackled like a maniac until it was nothing more than circuit board confetti and plastic chunks scattered across the snow. Then, feeling my bladder flush with the abundance of fresh water, I pissed on the remains. It was a good day to be alive. I said hi to the girls, who were trying on all the new clothes Kate had ordered specially. Every outfit they'd tried on was dappled in dark grease spots, but neither seemed to notice. Abby did an elaborate twirl for me in a blue sundress. She pointed out that the vital accessory her outfit was missing was a puppy. You never know, 
I said. Christmas is right around the corner. Anything could happen. The other cooler of fat was where I'd left it in the workshop. There was still a little of Abby's mind dormant inside the adipose tissue, but nothing that she would miss. To make all this work, well, you know, sacrifices. I ran the remote program and formatted the remaining nanobots, then uploaded Molly's data. Photos of me holding her the day she was born. Her favorite toy, a stuffed frog. Video of all three of her birthdays, and the clown face cake Kate had spent 14 hours getting exactly right. Her minuscule nervous system took no time to assemble. I transferred the raw tissue to the tank, and it took immediately. It would be a few hours before she'd be ready, so I covered the tank in a blanket and left her to dream about past lives. That afternoon, the contractors called. The house was almost complete. It would be fully furnished in the next few days and ready for us to move in. They asked if I had any other requests, anything they could do to make it special. I thought for a moment, felt my face twist up into a grin, and told the nice lady I'd send her a list immediately. Her reply was as swift as it was brief. Everything will be ready by 5 p.m. tomorrow. We'll leave the key under the mat. Wishing you the happiest of holidays. Molly's second birth was far less dramatic than her first. Her mother's water hadn't broken in a chain store fitting room. She hadn't been delivered in a mall parking lot in the back of an ambulance while her father got four speeding tickets in his desperation to get to the hospital. This time, on the 20th of December, I was there. I scooped little Molly Godwin out of the amniotic tank and swaddled her in a towel. I held her close to my heart and looked down at her pulpy yellow body while she breathlessly wailed for her mommy. It was perfect. Once we had all calmed down a little, I told them to bundle up warm and come outside. The frosted grass crunched under our toes as we crested the hill. The house was a festive beacon glowing in the dark. All the eaves delicately hung with strings of flickering rainbow lights. Through the giant front window, I saw a roaring fireplace with a bottle of champagne on the mantel. Electric pillar candles wrapped in festive red bows clustered on every surface, and a real fir tree decorated with red and gold baubles. There was a giant wreath on the front door, and a card tucked into it that read, Welcome home, Arthur. Abby shrieked in delight when she saw the mountain of gifts under the tree. Can we open presents? Please, Daddy, please? Of course you can, beauties. I'm not a complete monster, but one condition. Abby furrowed her eyeless yellow face at me, trying to disentangle the game I was playing. Tonight, you can open one present each. Molly opened her mouth hole to interrupt, but I shut her down with a look. But I get to pick which. Their meaty little faces said it all. I'd achieved the mecca of parenting. I'd played this exactly right. Kate perched herself on the edge of the cream sofa to get a better view, a dark grease smear on the couch expanding beneath her backside as she shifted her weight. I shuffled around under the tree and retrieved a small silver package with a red bow. Molly snatched it from me. She battled with the paper. Bless her. Her tiny fingers were too slippery. Abby watched, the cogs of her mind whirring at full speed. She knew I was up to something, 
She was a smart kid, but she hadn't put it together quite yet. Eventually, though, frustrated with waiting, Abby helped her sister with the paper. Molly opened the rectangular gift box and produced a rubber banana. I don't like bananas, Daddy. I told her to give it a squeeze, and she did. A high-pitched, wheezing squeak echoed through the cozy living room. Molly squealed in delight. She did it again and again. Abby, in the manner of teenagers, pretended incredibly hard that she was not amused. But she was. A muffled bark silenced all the giggling. The girls stared at the tree, trying to put one and one together. I grinned at Kate like a circus clown on methamphetamine. She silently mouthed, You didn't. I winked back. She beamed. Abby snatched the squeaky toy from her sister and was using it like a radar to locate the source of the barking. Squeak. Ruff, ruff. Squeak. Burf. She lowered herself to her hands and knees on the wooden floor, craning her head to one side to try to zero in on the sound. Molly wasn't quite so quick on the uptake. She wanted her squeak narnar back. Just listen, Abby hissed. She squeaked the toy three times in succession. The response was immediate. Abby pulled a large box towards her, careful to not jostle it too much as she did. It was covered in the same silver wrapping paper, but there were holes the size of bottle caps punched around the rim. Inside, something with tiny claws scrambled from one side to the other and back again. Abby looked up at me. Go ahead, sweetheart, I said. The gift wrap was silver shreds on the floor in seconds. The movement within became frantic. Abby lifted the lid and shrieked at a frequency high enough to make a bat wince. Spongy hands caressed the tiny black puppy, lifted it to her face. It wasn't sure what to make of her, but that didn't stop the little tail from wagging. It lapped at her face, nibbled on her nose, but Abby didn't mind. Thank you, Daddy. Thank you so much. She's absolutely perfect. As she smothered the puppy in fatty kisses, it managed to bite off a small chunk of her cheek and gulp it down. Abby didn't seem to notice, or rather, if she did, she was too caught up in the moment to care. These last few days have been a magical blur. Abby built a blanket fort in the lounge with her sister. They stole the fairy lights off the tree and suspended them from broomsticks, cable tied to the legs of chairs. When the night comes down, the drooping arcs of flickering yellow bulbs become strings of fireflies. Abby named her puppy Raven, because she's the same color as the birds. Raven hasn't left her side. She follows, tiny paws pap-pap-papping over the reclaimed wood floor and snapping hungrily at her ankles. Still... She makes Abigail happy, and that really is all that matters. On Christmas Day, we all slept late. Kate woke me with insistent kisses on the back of my neck that quickly escalated into other insistent things. After we were spent, we got dressed and slipped downstairs to find the girls wearing Santa hats and waiting patiently in the front room. Gifts bulged out from beneath the tree like cankles under a moo. Raven yapped excitedly as I lifted Molly into my arms. She wanted to know what was in all the pretty boxes. Would you like to find out? The chaos was perfection. I took photos of everything, 
They complained, but that's what dads are supposed to do during the holidays, right? After a feast of turkey, roast potatoes, Brussels sprouts, and gravy, we slipped out into the snow-sodden backyard and built a family of snowmen. Molly made up silly names for each of them, and to her credit, Abby didn't make fun of her sister. Afterwards, we went in to warm up. Kate made hot chocolate to distract the girls, and then she and I snuck upstairs and locked the bedroom door behind us. When we came back, far more relaxed, the girls were sitting together on the couch, and the dog was asleep on Abby's lap. They were playing Monopoly. Molly was having a hard time getting to grips with the overall concept, so naturally her sister was milking it for all it was worth. Outside, beyond the bay window, the snow seemed to be falling in slow motion. I suggested that we watch a movie. Something classic, something black and white. You know the one I mean. Kate made popcorn, and we all curled up on the couch. Abby sat on my left, wearing a Santa hat she refused to take off. Molly was asleep in my arms before the opening credits had finished. Kate rested her head on my shoulder, making her brunette wig crooked. I told them that I loved them, that it had been the best Christmas ever. I wished the movie could go on forever, but I knew better. Everything ends. Everything decays. Beauty is fleeting. And that's what makes life precious. I slipped a hand into my pocket and felt for the remote. The click of the first button under the pad of my thumb. The structure within Kate's body, the part that holds her upright, went limp. Her face mashed into my shoulder. I heard the panic in her voice as she asked what was going on. I didn't explain. Click. Abby fell back into the couch, a flesh mannequin in a festive hat. Molly began to stir. I clicked the final button. Her tiny form wilted. My eyes prickled with memories. I ignored the screaming coming at me from both sides and cradled the thing in my arms, the facsimile of my dead daughter. Raven barked, frantic. She knew. Animals are smart like that. The insignificant black body leaped up at me from her master's lap, needled teeth bared. I snatched the dog up and twisted her head a full 180 degrees. Brittle bones shattered, punching through soft pelt. Raven tensed a moment, then went soft. The yellow pulp creature in the Santa hat, the obscene mockery of my beautiful daughter Abby, was shrieking. It couldn't weep, but for all the noises it was making, it might as well have been. Kate tried to comfort her wailing children with platitudes. She tried to comfort herself, but she knew in the depths of her lard heart that nothing she could say would stop it. The screaming had tarnished an otherwise perfect day, but only a little. I pressed another button, and all oral systems went offline. The room was silent, nothing but my heaving breath and the crackling fireplace. I lifted Molly up and carefully balanced her on her mother's lap. I could feel their eyes on me as I shuffled around the room. A little lighter fluid, a match, and in a matter of seconds the tree was as brilliant as it would ever be. I sat back on the couch, snuggled between my wife and older daughter, wrapped my arms around them both. 
Tilting my head, I kissed Kate's forehead one last time. I thanked her for giving me this chance to go the way I should have gone a year ago. I knew she could hear me. I knew that she could feel the ravenous heat creeping towards us, just as I could. Together, as a family, we admired the flames slithering up the tree like intangible snakes. The fire devoured tinsel and baubles all. Black smoke rose, transforming the ceiling into a soot carpet. I told my wife, my daughters, that I loved them. They didn't say it back, but they don't need to. Love is a verb. The doing of it uses you up. It consumes you like flame, until there's nothing left of you but a blackened, smoking husk. Thank you for listening to episode 1114 of the Wicked Library. It's been my pleasure to be back hosting an episode of the Wicked Library again. So I've been your host, Daniel Foytek. You can find me at dfoytek on Twitter. Today's author was Mike Pilgrim with his story, Personal Growth. Today's story was told by Graham Rowett. Our season 11 lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our art director and executive producer. Our producer is Meg Williams. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. To find out more about today's contributors and our team, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. If you'd like to help us keep bringing you our collection of dark tales, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Supporters of the show get these episodes ad-free and get to hear our bonus stories before anyone else. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, LLC. All rights reserved.